Well, in our studies through the book of Exodus, we come tonight to chapter 26, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 26. But before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our great God, we are filled with wonder and awe at Your love, Your tenderness, Your mercy, Your kindness, Your compassion, Your grace that is evidence in so many ways, most fully, of course, in the redeeming work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And even as we consider this text tonight, may we see Christ more clearly. May we grow to understand the wonderful nature of the triune God to whom we belong. May all who are here place their faith in Him, receiving and resting in Christ alone for salvation, in whose name we pray, amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. And moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be twenty-eight cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to another with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost to the second set. You shall make fifty clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and that side, to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, twenty frames for the south side, forty bases of silver you shall make under the twenty frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, twenty frames. And there are forty bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them, they shall form the two corners. 
and there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames on the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frames shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. The word of our God, you may be seated. This is probably one of those passages that when you come to it in your Scripture reading plan, you skim over it pretty quickly. At the very least, you probably find it difficult to follow exactly what is being said here with all of these details about fabrics and clasps, measurements, and various materials. Now, if you happen to have some sort of a study Bible, you might see a visual depiction of what the tabernacle probably looked like, and that may help you to some degree, but there are details that we find in the text that cannot be captured fully in a pictorial rendering. Now, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed, and therefore it is profitable for us Though certainly some passages like this one can present a much bigger challenge for us to try to discern how to profit from something that seems not only difficult to decipher, but seems far removed from our own historical and cultural setting. And so in order to begin to understand what we read here in Exodus 26, let's think about what the tabernacle teaches us about man's dilemma. And this is our first point this evening and that is mankind's dilemma. Now, if we were to capture the biggest dilemma before mankind, our biggest problem above all other problems is how can I be made right with God? How can I enter into the presence of the living God? How can I have certainty that when I depart this current life, I will have peace with God? Whatever problems I may experience in this life collectively pale in comparison to this human dilemma because if this issue is not resolved in this life, then I am doomed for all of eternity. And you see, the deepest longing of the human heart is to be in intimate fellowship with the living God. This is the purpose for which we were made that our sin disrupted. I've been rereading Augustine's Confessions in which he talks about his life in great detail 
from his childhood through his adolescence into his adulthood. For years, he attempted to fill his life with all sorts of distractions, indulgences that this world offered, including the approval of others. But he acknowledges that even in the midst of striving to gratify this longing of his heart, he knew that everything that this world offered was ultimately vanity. He knew that it was a shallow and empty pursuit. And he praises the Lord throughout his confessions for saving him from such a life of futility. He thanks God repetitively for showing to him grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. And he makes that wonderful declaration from his own experience that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. This is the purpose for which we were made, and yet our sin in Adam has disrupted all of this and kept us from Him. How can we know Him? How can we see Him? How can we come into His presence and not be justly destroyed? We need direction. We need guidance. And we need provision outside of ourselves because we cannot answer these questions on our own, nor can we resolve this human dilemma by ourselves. And in the tabernacle, we begin to see the Lord's provision to this dilemma, to this quandary. And this is our second main point, and that is simply the Lord's provision. Now, before we even begin to think about the structure of the tabernacle itself, what's remarkable, what's remarkable about all of this is that this comes from God's initiative. He is the one who does all of this. He is the one who establishes a way for us to come to Him. Not only would we be clueless if left to ourselves, but we would have no interest in Him because of our wicked and rebellious hearts. And so, in spite of all of the confusing details that we read here in this chapter, If you take nothing else from what you read here, at the very least, our response ought to be one of gratitude, thanking the Lord that He has provided a way, as we'll see a way ultimately in the Lord Jesus, that we might come to Him, that I might know Him, that I might be loved by Him and love Him in return. That is a wonderfully remarkable provision that we do not want to lose sight of. So let's think here about the unfolding of these blueprints from the Lord to Moses on Mount Sinai. Since Moses has been with the Lord in these 40 days, we have read, of course, about some of the furniture that Moses is to pass along to those gifted men to create. There is in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, of course. And then as we move outward from the inside out, the table of bread and the golden candlestick lampstand in the outer room. And now here in this chapter, as we sort of move out even further with this bird's eye view, we take in the whole scene of this tent-like structure of the tabernacle. Just as Israel in every family unit was going to be living in a tent for this entire generation of wilderness wandering, so the Lord their God will come in intimate presence to dwell in their midst in a similar structure, a movable, transportable, collapsible tent. And so, as we think again about that greatest of human problems, namely that sin creates enmity between 
us and God, separation from Him, we want to think here, what does this structure of the tabernacle teach us about the resolution toward that dilemma? Now, we first read about these layers of fabric that will cover the frame of the tabernacle. And notice that there are four layers of material. The inside layer, the layer that the priests would see when they ministered inside of the tabernacle, was made of linen and was adorned with blue and purple and scarlet yarn. There were to be upon it embroidered images of cherubim throughout the fabric as though the priests are nearing the heavenly throne room itself, surrounded by the angelic host. Cherubim who would not only bow in perpetual adoration and praise before the Lord, singing of His holiness, but would serve as gatekeepers, as though keeping out anything that might seek to encroach upon that holy space of God. Now, all of these ten sheets of linen would be coupled or joined together to form a seamless cover over the entire frame of the tabernacle. And then on top of that linen would be another layer of material made of goatskin, which would have simply been a common material used for tents at this time of history. The third layer of material would be ram's skin. In some manuscripts, this ram's skin we read is dyed red, perhaps dyed red as a perpetual reminder that atoning blood is needed to come into the presence of God. Remember how Adam and Eve needed the covering of that substitute to properly clothe them after their sin against the Lord. And so this red-colored ram's skin would point to the need of such covering to any who would enter below. And then the final outer layer seems to be some sort of leather. Most scholars believe it is some sort of porpoise or perhaps a, a cousin of a manatee, some sort of a sea cow. You may have noticed that there are specific dimensions that are given to each layer of material. And the outer three layers are actually a little bit larger than that linen layer on the inside. And so those larger pieces would provide weather-resistant covering from the elements of wind and rain and sun, as well as keeping any light from the outside from penetrating into the room below, a room that would be shrouded in darkness except for the light that came from the lampstand. We then read details on how the framing was to be constructed. All of these poles or columns of framing along with crossbars all covered with gold would rest in these silver pedestals that would sit at equally spaced intervals around the perimeter of the tabernacle so that the structure would not rest upon the ground but would be somewhat elevated. See, this would serve not only as anchor points but to indicate that God's throne room is to be separate from the creation below. And we can envision some sort of interlocking joints for the framing so that the entire structure could be taken apart relatively quickly for transport. And yet it would need to be stable enough to bear all of the weight pressing down upon it. And once all of this was put together, that exterior fabric of those four layers would lay flat along the top of the tabernacle, flat down along the sides, and perhaps taper off a little bit towards the bottom that rain would come away to the ground, and of course there would be stakes pegged to the ground so that there's no possibility of strong wind blowing away the material. 
We then learn what the inside of the tabernacle looked like. Again, with that interior layer of linen, there would be these vivid embroidered colors along with images of cherubim all along the ceiling. And then there was, of course, the curtain that divided the two inner rooms, a curtain held up by golden clasps as it hung from the top. The Jewish Talmud tells us that this material was a handbreadth in width, roughly four inches or so, and would take upwards of a hundred priests to carry it because of its weight. And so this thick, weighty curtain separated the most holy place, which was in the shape of a perfect cube in its dimensions, 15 feet by 15 by 15, from the outer room in the shape of a rectangle, 15 by 15 by 30 feet in length. And finally, there's instruction given to Moses on how to make the flap that would cover the doorway to the tabernacle. Now, let's think ahead to when all of this would be built. The reference there in your bulletin to Exodus chapter 36. And think about what some of the initial impressions might be of this completed tabernacle structure. Now, on the one hand, Compared to a modern-day church, this was a relatively small structure, about 675 square feet, though definitely larger, of course, than any of the other tents of the children of Israel. On the other hand, the collective weight of all of this would have been quite impressive for a nomadic people to fashion and to construct and transport all of this. Here's just one example from Exodus 38 Verse 27, we read that each of these 100 silver bases was to weigh one talent, which is roughly 75 pounds. And so those silver bases alone would amount to over three and a half tons of weight. And we can only speculate how much more weight with all of the acacia wood used as framing overlaid with gold along with those heavy layers of material. And so it really was quite an undertaking to dismantle and to transport, and then to construct again the tabernacle as they traveled. But let's think here for a moment about some of the aesthetic features to the tabernacle. Certainly from the inside, the tabernacle would have been visually stunning. From the beauty of the gold to the wonder of the vibrant colors on the ceiling above and on the veil in front, to the detailed craftsmanship of every square inch of this structure to the inviting smell of the incense burning upon the altar, to even the smell of bread as it was placed there every Sabbath morning, to the warm lights coming off of the lampstand. All of this would engage all of the senses of the priest, of the wonder of being so close to the living God. But from the outside, it certainly would not have looked like that impressive of a structure. Some of you may have been to some of the Florida fresh springs a little bit north of us, and maybe as you're there with your family, you've seen a family of manatees swim by, and it's doubtful that any of you look at the family of manatees and say, there it is. That's the color I want the outside of my house to be like. If only it were legal, I could get some of that hide and make a tent for my family. But from the outside, this is not the most attractive structure. Listen to what Danny Hyde says in his book. He writes, this is typical of God 
who often cloaks his glory in simplicity, his power in weakness, and his wisdom in foolishness, to confound the unbeliever, but to comfort the believer. There may not have been anything particularly attractive with the appearance of Jesus, but the glory of the eternal God is veiled beneath the ordinary. And so from one perspective, not a very impressive structure, but from another vantage point, remarkable, remarkable in beauty, and even more remarkable and wondrous that this is God's provision to come to Him. And think about one more impression from the experience of a priest from the tribe of Levi ministering on behalf of the people. Perhaps this is his first time to have this privilege of coming into that outer room. He moves, of course, from that outer courtyard, a courtyard, as we'll see next time, which represents this present age, a barren courtyard with really nothing impressive about it at all. But as the curtain is drawn, he then moves to the inside, transported from the common to something heavenly in nature, from this world to the world to come, so to speak. And how could he not be filled with awe and with wonder that he is so close, that he is so near to the living God? So what does this teach us about knowing the Lord? What do we learn from all of this about gaining access to Him? What's our third point this evening, which is limited access. Limited access to the tabernacle. What do some of these features teach us about access to God? Well, once these instructions were passed along to Bezalel and Aholiab, those men who were divinely appointed and divinely gifted to begin construction. It would obviously take quite some time to make all of this. And as the children of Israel watched these men labor, and as they began to see this structure take shape, what would they have thought about all of this? What would they have discerned about the significance of what God is doing in their midst? Well, remember back in Exodus 25, verse 8, the Lord prefaced all of His instructions to Moses by telling him that they would make for him a sanctuary, a dwelling place among the people, an earthly picture of a heavenly reality, a model of that heavenly throne room where the Lord God Himself reigns on high. When, when I was a kid, I remember getting for one of my birthdays one of the, these little model kits, one of those do-it-yourself kits. It was probably of a Mustang or some other muscle car or something like that. And of course, you're all excited to make something that looks exactly like the picture on the outside, which is a picture of a real Mustang. So, of course, there's no chance in that. But even though it was one of those level one models, which was supposed to be the easiest, I still remember the glue coming out too fast and getting over all the pieces. None of the pieces quite lining up as they're supposed to, as the directions make it seem. I still can't even put together a piece of furniture from Ikea, if that tells you anything. But even when it was finished, it looked like it was in desperate need of a serious alignment. But even if I happened to be a model expert, no one would have confused that model with the reality of the thing itself. And as wonderful as the craftsmanship was with a tabernacle, no one should confuse that structure with the reality. 
But how do we know that this is a replica of the heavens above? Well, a couple of weeks ago, you might remember, we looked at Hebrews 8, 5, which reads, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And so with the colors, with the images, with the valuable pure materials that are used, the tabernacle as a whole is a model of heaven. Vern Poitras writes, When God comes to dwell with the Israelites, He brings down to them in His wonderful condescension a little replica of heaven. And think for a moment about what proximity here teaches us about access to God. The further you are away from the presence of God, the less pure or less perfect things become. This is seen in the dimensions of the tabernacle, from a perfect cube in the most holy place to less than symmetrical measurements and dimensions as you move outward. This is seen in the materials used as you move from the inside out, from gold to silver to bronze. This is seen in the varying degrees of access given. All of God's people could venture into the courtyard, but only the appointed priests of Levi could go into the holy place, and only the high priest could enter into the most holy place, and of course then only once per year. And with that access, there is only one way to enter, one doorway, one path to get inside, only one way that God has provided. For salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we might be saved. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And we learn more about this limited access when we read later about instructions on the location of the tabernacle, both where it, is, where it is to be placed in the midst of the camp and how it is to be set up. We will learn that the tabernacle is to be placed in the very center of the camp, that the children of Israel are to learn that all of life is to revolve around the centrality of the Lord, that every ethical decision that one makes, every action engaged in, every word said is to be done in reference to the centrality of the Lord for all of life. And the tabernacle is always to be set up the same way, with the door to the tabernacle facing east, the back wall toward the west. As one enters the right side where the tables kept is to the north and the golden lampstand to the south on the left. Now, if there is limited access through one doorway, then that means that the only way to come into the presence of God is to enter from the east and move westward. Now, why is that significant? Well, perhaps for several reasons. The sun, of course, rises from the east. So, the priest would begin his day in service by replenishing the bread on that Sabbath morning or tending to the wicks of the lampstand. And as he entered into the tabernacle, his back would be toward the sun as he would be facing the living God. Now, this would be to set the people of Israel apart from all the other pagan nations of the world, all of whom would either worship the sun directly or some pagan deity who was believed to be behind the sun. 
Instead, they should put their back toward any form of false worship and set their gaze forward upon the true and living God. In Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel sees a vision of increasing levels of apostasy among the Israelites, which culminates in them turning their back to the temple and their face toward the sun, worshiping the sun. For this, the Lord's wrath falls upon them. But the directional establishment of the tabernacle has roots in the Garden of Eden as well. Remember when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, sent down from that holy hill, they were banished eastward in exile, driven from the presence of God. And so throughout redemptive history, to move east is to move further from the Lord, whether to be sent to the east in exile or whether to go to the east in rebellion against the Lord. But to come to the Lord in repentance In restoration required one to move west, just as this westward entrance into the tabernacle signified restoration, a restored relationship with the Lord. And so these, you see, would be things that would be placed in the mind of the children of Israel. Now, remember our ongoing tension that we're learning as we think here about limited access, that on the one hand, God is in their midst, coming in intimate fellowship, establishing a way for the people to come to Him. On the other hand, most of the children of Israel were never permitted to enter. Even when the structure was taken down and carried through the wilderness, only divinely appointed men were permitted to do that work. And some of those elements we read later in the Pentateuch were even covered with blue material to protect them, and some would, of course, never see those things. And so, even if the average Israelite happened to get a glimpse inside as the the curtain was pulled back that the priest could go in, they would only see that veil behind. They could not see into the most holy place, a place shrouded in darkness with no light that could penetrate through that thick veil and no light that could come through the top or the sides because of that four-layered covering. One commentator writes, though Israel had this tremendous privilege of the divine presence in their midst, there was to be no doubt that He is the Holy One and that access to Him was no easy matter, even though His place and temple was right there in the center of the camp. And when you think about the cherubim, again, embroidered along that linen material on the ceiling, and cherubim embroidered upon the veil in front. Don't think of childlike, chubby creatures with rosy cheeks and fluffy wings, but instead think back to Genesis chapter 3, where we first read of the angel of the Lord standing with flaming sword preventing Adam and Eve and any from coming to gain access to the tree of life. So the images here of the cherubim upon the curtains should create holy fear and reverence. Who dare to enter this place? Who dare to come into the presence of the Holy One? He is righteous and He is pure. He is radiant in His holiness and all of His ways and His justice demands that 
sin and wickedness be punished. Just think of the arrogance of mankind throughout the ages, but especially in our own time. Think about the presumption of mankind that we can enter into favor with God in any way that we please. But a day is coming when such presumption will be shown as futility. The only way forward to life is under the sword of judgment. But think of this. Though this access is limited, there is still access. There is still a way. There is still a door because the right person can come in the right way. So who could enter past that veil? Who could venture into that revered space and even further into that room shrouded with darkness? Only one person and only once per year. Remember on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would first come with blood to atone for his own sin, blood placed upon the mercy seat, and he would withdraw and he would spend painstaking day preparing to come in the next day to represent the people, clothed with purification rites and clean garments. And then as he comes again by himself into the tabernacle, he must carry with him a basin of blood, the blood of another, the blood of an atoning sacrifice for sin. But of course, we know that this limited access has been gloriously opened through the work of our beloved Savior, Jesus. And that leads us to the final thing to think about briefly, and that is the true tabernacle. It's not as though sin in our age is no longer a problem. It's not like the children of Israel were worse sinners than the rest of us. We are still separated from God because of our sin, which is grievous against Him. Philip Ryken writes, The God who lived in the tabernacle is the same God who rules today. He is still the great king who sits enthroned above the cherubim. He is still the Lord of all the earth, and his character has not changed. He is still the holy God who demands perfect obedience and the just God who punishes sin. He is as awesome today as he was in the days of Moses." Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 15. There are many places in the Word of God to which we could turn to show us who it is that can gain access into the presence of God, but I think abundantly clear here in Psalm 15. David, the psalmist, writes, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor or takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Who does these things? Who has such purity of heart? Who never speaks against his neighbor? Who never has a dispute with a friend? 
Who can say that he has only spoken the truth? Such a person is the only one who can come into the presence of God. And yet we violate the law every day of our lives. We don't do what is right. We shade the truth. We cut others down. We gossip about others and belittle them. We hold on to disputes. We allow divisions to continue. We are quick to serve ourselves rather than others. We will never measure up to what is required. And we will never find among us someone who does measure up. Instead, it is Jesus who came and tabernacled among us. Jesus himself is the sacred space where heaven comes down to earth, not made with precious materials of silver or gold, but in flesh and blood. The divine taking human nature upon himself in one person. And think about how the entire earthly life of Jesus is oriented toward the will of his Father in heaven. And every thought that entered his mind, and every word that he ever uttered, and every decision that he made, and every longing of his heart was all for the glory of his Father in heaven. And when he walked in perfect obedience, his face was set like a flint to the cross, the purpose for which he came, to die for you and for me, to die for lost sinners. My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me. And at the death of our beloved Savior, that temple veil, not 15 feet, but 30 feet in height, was torn in two from top to bottom, indicating satisfaction of the wrath of God. Imagine the priests who were there ministering in that outer room at the death of Christ when that veil was rent in two, looking upon the Ark of the Covenant, peering right into the most holy place, into that heavenly throne room, and not struck dead. And why? Because all of this in a moment, at the final breath of our Savior upon the cross, all of this immediately became obsolete. This is God Himself beckoning us to come to Him with confidence. A veil that was rent in two, never to be sewn back together. And the way is still open to sinners. But you must come the right way, through the right person. And as we close, listen to a few verses from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. First Hebrews 9 verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 9.24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And 10.19, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Did you hear that? The curtain is his flesh, his flesh that was rent in two for us, that we might have confidence to come before him. We gain access by grace alone, through faith alone. 
whether for the first time or in an ongoing manner, the same grace that saves is the grace that sanctifies and continues to grant us access and such confidence that we can come to Him. And as we close tonight, we'll sing of such wonderful work of our Savior who reigns on high. Jesus shall reign, Him 441.